0: The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to another Top of the Pods. I'm Ben Luke. This week we're looking back a few months to the opening of this year's Venice Biennale and bringing together three conversations focusing on the exhibition at the heart of that event. Called May You Live in Interesting Times, it's curated by the director of the Hayward Gallery in London, Ralph Rugoff. A bit later, you'll hear my interview with the French artist Dominique González-Fuerster about the first-ever virtual reality commission for the official Biennale show, and Jane Morris and I give our verdict on the exhibition and some of the key works in it. But first, here's my interview with Ralph Rugoff, done in March 2019, as he was putting the finishing touches to the exhibition. Ralph, uh, let's begin by talking about the title. When did it come to you, and what's its significance?
1: You know, I can't even remember anymore when the title came to me, but its I think what attracted me was, one, uh, I was thinking a lot about some of the more dreadful things happening politically in the last two or three years and trying to think of a way not to create a an exhibition that would reflect in a depressing way on the times we live in. And this phrase, which I'd known since I was a child, popped to mind. And this, may you live in interesting times, it seems to be kind of open-ended in what it might mean. You know, it's an invitation or and it might be a way to frame an exhibition which hopefully is reflecting on this time, but to offer the possibility that you might find a perspective of living in this time where you could see this as an interesting time rather than a dangerous, hair-raising, horrific period of human history. Um, Then... The fact that this was also a piece of fake news, as it were, that's been recycled over and over again over the past hundred years, that this was said to be an ancient Chinese curse, even though it never was. And everyone from pre-war politicians in the UK to Hillary Rodden Clinton, from Albert Camus to Arthur C. Clarke have used this phrase, talking about it as an ancient Chinese curse. So the fact that we now live in a world where you can go online and find out in you know two minutes that there never was an ancient Chinese curse, I think is, brings up some very interesting issues that seem relevant to this
0: time. So the question is, to what extent are the artists directly engaging in this notion of fake news, in this idea of uh, alternative facts?
1: Some artists are engaging with it quite directly, I think. I, I don't want to say that this is an exhibition about fake news and alternative facts. Um, in fact, it's really an exhibition against the very idea that an exhibition might be about something, any more than a work of art might be re- about this or that. It's much more trying to present a strong sense of you know the complexity of works of art, which generate many different kinds of associations that you have to work out for yourself, um, that have this conversation with an audience and which ultimately are posing questions and that I hope you know for me that's the goal of this exhibition is that it leaves people with some interesting questions that they can carry on to their experience afterwards I mean this is very much an exhibition dedicated to the idea that the most important thing that happens doesn't happen inside the gallery it's what visitors do with that experience after they leave.
0: I suppose the most innovative idea is this idea of separating the Arsenale and the central pavilion in the Giardini into two separate exhibitions. Why did you do that?
1: Uh, For for two reasons. One uh, was to echo this idea of this kind of uh, social division that seems to have been exacerbated in our world, where we have these very polarized societies in the UK, obviously. uh, We have this division over Brexit with in a way, two different countries existing side by side, seemingly living in parallel information landscapes. But also it was a way really to call attention to the multiplicity of artistic practice, that interesting artists work in different ways. Um, Their work straddles different categories in different ways and to create a sense that you're only seeing a part of a bigger picture when you come to an exhibition like this. Um, And to really just shine a light on this aspect of art, it's uh, the way it dwells in ambiguity, the way it embraces contradiction uh, at a moment when our information landscape seems to be growing ever narrower.
0: And I think this is a really important point because uh, we live in a time when the art media is prone to... A pigeonhole artist or to reduce their practice to certain to almost a kind of soundbite and what you're saying here is that actually artists actually have a license to go in any kind of direction they want and here are for each artist you're showing, two examples or two ways of working
1: Absolutely, and that each one of those ways is also completely multiple um, and in a way, if you looked at it closely enough, kind of define any pigeonhole that we might normally try to squeeze it into and um, yeah there are kind of countless examples of how that works in the exhibition I think that's the kind of work that's always excited me and I think if I have a criteria for quality in in terms of assessing works of art it's the levels of resonance that a work of art can generate in terms of uh, sending you off on this journey where you're kind of following one slippage of meaning to another to another to another and it doesn't end and that is kind of a sublime experience
0: Uh, tell us about the experience of of working with the artists, because it's it's i think it's really important again that you are working exclusively with living artists in the last biennale for instance there were a lot of dead artists i'd like to know why you chose not to include artists from the past
1: I think Documenta also feature a lot of dead artists and I think it's become a curatorial fashion to kind of try to recuperate artists who've been forgotten or were never gotten the attention they deserved, which to me is a great museum project. It's about introducing people into the canon who should be there and aren't there. Um, Of course, I love the disposability, and I know I'll get in trouble for using this word, of the biennale, that it's something that happens every two years. It's, you know, it's got a short fuse on it. It's something that can address this moment rather than having to address who deserves to be in the history books. And it was, you know, also just for me, uh, I mean, as a curator, curator, you have a lot more control when you're dealing with dead artists, obviously. Um, But it was a lot more interesting for me to be in a, a dialogue with the artists I was working with. And all of whom uh, were incredibly excited about this idea of having opportunities to show two different types of work. And of course, we might expect that, <laughs> but um, nobody was complaining about it. And uh, I, think, I think people actually really did enthusiastically get behind that idea.
0: In the presentation, you made a point of, of pointing to the fact that there are lots of painters in the exhibition. Uh, And you talked about how painting is a kind of zombie that keeps coming back from its reported death. Tell us more about, one, what you perceive as what keeps it vital and what is keeping, you know, particularly in relation to this show, but also, you know, what is is that zombie quality?
1: Well, you know, I think it's interesting when you get a medium that starts to seem quasi-obsolete and it, in a way, becomes a kind of slow technology, a technology. Well, painting's always been more or less uh, a slower way of processing information, say, than photographic technologies or digital technologies um, in terms of making images. Let's leave sculpture out of this for the time being. And uh, I think increasingly painting has become a place where artists reflect on The kind of status of image traffic in the world at large, whether that is happening online or on television or Hollywood, uh, through news images, even if an artist is making a self portrait, it's always influenced by these other media. And I think they're also commenting on the way images today are so heavily mediated, And end up circulating in all kinds of different platforms. We don't have a simple singular relationship to an image anymore. And and that's an interesting thing for a unique object like a painting to explore. It it gives you it's distanced enough from this phenomenon by its status that it allows you to look at that reality I think with the necessary, well distance.
0: In your text about the exhibition you write about about foregrounding playfulness. The word playfulness is not something we can use about very many recent biennales. I don't mean Venice biennales, I mean biennials. What, what do you mean by playfulness?
1: Well, you know, I'm very interested in art that entertains me. I mean, you know, I, I don't think entertainment is a bad word. I don't think we should let it be co-opted completely by commercial, corporate-produced, Media, television, Hollywood, whatever. I like the word entertain because it's. We also entertain ideas, and um, I think it's one of the powerful things that art can do. Is it puts a cast a spell on you, you know? It gets you engaged, involved, and to do that, it's playing with you in some way. It's got to be able to play with your responses um, and get you interested in it. And because I really am. Um, a strong believer in the idea that interesting art works as a conversation and exchange with the viewer, that has to be a form of play, I think. You know, I talk a lot about this idea of art embracing contradiction. And I think the idea that you can be silly and serious, you can make a work of art that's sad and funny at the same time, uh, that might be beautiful and ugly at the same time, that these are things to me that make interesting works of art, because you can't resolve them in any facile way. You can't pigeonhole them. Your brain keeps trying to work out what is that relationship between these seemingly incompatible qualities and and the feelings that are associated with them. So, you know, playful doesn't have to mean funny or light. Uh, Sometimes things are seriously playful.
0: What that makes me think of is, is the artist Mike Kelly, who I know has been an artist of tremendous importance to your worldview and your curating. Is Mike Kelly in your thoughts as a curator almost perennially? You know?
1: Mike definitely is. Um, and I really, Mike was the person who set me up to curate the first show I ever curated. So Mike had this phrase, negative joy, for talking about what he thought was the social function of art, that it should provide both critical insight but also pleasure. And to me, too many exhibitions seem to forget the second part of this idea. And I think it unnerves people. The idea that you might make an artwork about something that's a very depressing reality, but somehow that work also is going to provide you with pleasure, right? That freaks us out from a moral point of view. How can we possibly take pleasure when people are suffering? And yet this is where art is different from journalism. And there's a really great piece in this show uh, by Lawrence Abu Hamdan called Walled on Walled. And one of the things it utilizes is some research that he was initially asked to do by Amnesty International to interview some survivors of a notorious prison in Syria that very few people actually ever survive. And he you know, carried out this research. He interviewed people, Amnesty International used it as part of a paper they produced. But he found himself with a lot of information that he'd come up with that he said, newspapers weren't interested in, it wasn't appropriate for what Amnesty was doing, but he found it fascinating material. And he said that art really was the only form in which this kind of information could find a form um, that would allow him to ask questions that also had to do with questions about things like the nature of evidence um, as well as the specific facts of these cases that he was looking at. Um, And so I like this idea that there's information in the world which won't fit into these other formats which are much more black and white, but that art, because of its capacity for accommodating ambiguity and Allowing a kind of reflection to occur around the way some something's articulated was the home for this material. So there's an interesting, you know, back and forth I think between artists who are making work about the things in the real world, but whose work takes specific forms that assert how art is different from the texture of facts and the way journalism reports them
0: another factor which tells me that you're a real exhibition maker is that you thought about the journey through the arsenale which is you said in the in the press conference that it can feel like a bit of a march of death when it's just this endless long passage you're going to break it up but not through not with heavy walls but with sort of you're talking about see-through materials um tell me about that experience because again that seems to me to relate to the pleasure of seeing an exhibition we talk about pleasure it, you know venice is an exhausting experience and you you seem very conscious of that
1: no i am i mean you know i'm a funny person to be uh curating a biennale because i generally find them to be very difficult experiences as a as a visitor um you know i think I've always been fairly sensitive to the impact that architecture has on artworks and the idea that artworks are actually very sensitive to the ways they're installed and what's around them. And working at the Hayward for the last 12 years has increased this appreciation for the impact uh, architecture has. In Venice, you couldn't have two more different spaces, a neoclassical building from the late 19th century and a former, Roadmaking making factory that dates back to the 14th century, um, they already give every Venice Biennale a split personality in a sense. So It seemed better to address this consciously than not. I mean, the Arsenale is this long, 300-meter, narrow rectangle. feels a bit like the digestive passage. And you enter one end and you're spat out at the other. <laughs> And I wanted to break up that journey. I mean, usually because there are columns, rows of columns, that two of them that run all the length of this three hundred meters, typically people build walls running the length of the building. And to me that ends up feeling a bit too close to an art fair where you're looking at you know you can look down this long corridor and there's art on either side and it you know it's it's you can see too much at once. So the way we've divided it up is with many sections that bisect this long rectangular space horizontally. And it'll be a bit more of a labyrinth. Um, I'm hoping that doesn't prove to be just as exhausting, it might. But uh, I think at least it'll allow you to focus better when you're looking at a work of
0: art because you don't have 15 other artworks in the background. You've talked about textual references or cornerstones. So you talked about a text by Bruno Latour. You talked about a text by um, Umberto Eco. I'm wondering about artistic cornerstones. You talked about Mike Kelly as a kind of general cornerstone, if you like, for your work. Uh, were, were there exhibitions past that, that you you have had in mind when thinking about this one?
1: I mean, in a funny way, when you, when you are asked to do this thing, the Venice Biennale, you do... End up reflecting on all the biennales you've been to, and it did make me think a lot about Francesco Bonami's Biennale. I didn't even remember the exact date anymore, but I think two thousand three. Two thousand three. Yeah, um, where he had nine co-curators. They each co each curated a separate section, and I remember at the time thinking it was completely incoherent and didn't add up to anything. But in, in retrospect. I think I find it more and more interesting because one, it really addressed the fact that, gee, one big exhibition is almost too large to take in, right? And how do you make a coherent connection between 100 or 150 different artists? And some of the smaller exhibitions that were part of that one Biennale were were really successful and were really interesting. Um, And in a way, I think that was the most radical experiment uh, in the Biennale's history. So perhaps that was uh,
0: in the back of my mind. Okay, well, Ralph, thank you so much for talking to us. All right, thank you, Ben. Now, one of the 79 artists in May You Live in Interesting Times is the French artist Dominique González-Fuerster. For her two contributions to the show, she created a diorama of a Martian landscape in the Giardini and the first ever virtual reality, or VR, commission for the Biennale. I met her in Venice in May 2019 to discuss the work. Dominique, is this your first VR work?
2: Yes, you know, if we define VR as related to a device and headset, I would say no. I think I've always been into virtual reality, you know, in some ways. I think literature is virtual reality. And I've done um, in the 90s a CD-ROM, which was a virtual building, residence color, which was housing all my rooms then, you know. So a first thing cursion into so i think it's not new, it's new with this specific technical device but it's not new for me as a, um, as a space
0: can you explain how you prepared for the work and how it might have differed from the the kind of research you might do for a work which doesn't involve this particular technology or did you did you approach it in much the same way
2: well i i always do lots of research so of course part of the research is always about the context, and in that case, the con- context is also, yeah, the device itself and history of VR. So there was some there was some research on the, yeah, on very specific elements, but yeah, part is research the way I do it usually, like lots of reading. It's also connected to films, experiences, and uh, I think I approached it like. Um, different type of, yeah, space and display and also a chance to explore abstraction. I'm not a painter, I'm not, you know, and, but I've been, I've had abstraction on my mind since a long time and this was a possibility to, to, yeah, look more into that. But also all this very interesting connection between, um, when you know like at the beginning of photography it's connected with spiritism and all these experiments you know like how also um if you if you hybridize a a a kind of new technology with ideas that seem completely opposite or different the in between there is something very interesting
0: when you say ideas that are opposite or different, what, what do you mean?
2: Well, for example, here, um, one of my inspiration is all the experiences I had with Corinne Sombrin. Also, she also did the soundscape for that piece, and she works on trance as a cognitive trance, modified state of consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, that could be either sound-induced or self-induced, And I found really interesting analogies between virtual space and the space you're in when you're in trance. What I want to say is both are spaces where you have to give up on the space you're used to, you know, your grid of of references and, and the space in which you move. And you have to retreat into another space where other information's become primary to your experience
0: what's interesting about that is i'm i'm really intrigued when i'm participating in vr about the way my mind somehow separates from my body was that a conscious part of the way that you thought about it yeah
2: that that was for me that's a very interesting aspect so you can connect it to dreaming in a way so your body could disappear or not because it depends on the VR experiences you know like you can be more scopic but you could also but there is this um, sense of a space that is that has other parameters and in which you move in a different way and so I, I relied on these trance experiences I had to to try to configure a space with these characteristics I experienced and which is not easy because it's you know very different from uh, an architecturally or it's very I'd say it's even different from the space that we know the um, perspective and geometry we know since Renaissance you know I'd say it's a break with that space in a way
0: and it's, it, that's the really interesting thing as well, because we form the space with our movements, don't we? That's you know we create we are creators as well as observers.
2: Yes, we in the you know the same way like we say in some you know scientific experiences. You you know you 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 modify the, it's 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 the same. So so you generate you know through your gaze, through your movements, through you through even your breath. You, you generate the work, you know, like you but it's also not interaction in a I'd say in the heavy sense you know it's something more more organic more uh
0: yeah. Almost sort of nebulous. So it, it is, it, very often I was reminded of atmospheric conditions, like um, yeah. real-world atmospheric conditions, but almost heightened or given, a, because they're coloured so intensely, for instance, in some sequences.
2: Yeah, there is a very climatic you know, aspect to it, and, and I guess some of the references are also, you know, are also there. I don't want to say too much about what it is, like I want to keep it mysterious, you know, so I won't spoil it here. <laughs> it's very important for me. It's like I don't know if you ever experienced the Cosmodrome. So the Cosmodrome uh from two thousand one is a is a is a voyage outer space as opposed to this is a inner the endodrome inside is an is an inner journey. And they but they're both they, they have strong similarities, you know. They're both like immersive environments where you, you disconnect from surrounding grid to enter a different space.
0: When you approach VR, were you interested in... Because I know how much you think about space and about the body in space and all that. Were you aware of the, the, the kind of problematics of the collective experience versus that very individual experience that VR, at the moment, necessitates?
2: No, totally. In fact, you know, I'm really scared by VR. And I almost worked uh, somehow against VR Is this work, you know, because I've, I think what's more scary than a synthetic environment? You know, what's more scary than spending your time on the screen instead of experiencing biodiversity? So I felt... The only way for me to make it meaningful was to reconnect it to some organic aspects through through this through this trans references, but also to stage it as a collective experience and to um i when we discussed it with Ralph, I say I don't want to do you know phone booths a series of you know it it's it's too scary. And uh, so I think it's only, you know, it's like, I mean, Godard has been practicing this a lot in, in many ways. It's only when you're in a kind of sort of resistance with a medium or context that that interesting ideas come out, you know. And I, I think it's not re- just by praising a technique, you know. On the opposite, it's also by disliking certain aspects of it but my curiosity for it and i think the next step if i go further in it would be to see how you can also interact in this space because there are all these possibilities you know there was there was no time now but it's but still it would be always to this is why you can also experience it from inside and outside and it's so important like to visualize this moment of So of this watching, people watching something that you don't see, you know, like in a Caspar David Friedrich way. (laughs) It's very important to to keep all these levels, I think, and to... Yeah, I think it can be very scary. It can be very scary, but in the moment where we're questioning, you know, like... We, people still go on airplanes as if it was normal, but, you know, you also have all this stay-grounded movement. And I, I think the next, in these interesting times, you know, as Ralph called them, the next 10 years could be a complete change of many things, you know, like this international art world we've known, where people fly from, could be completely questioned. So virtual reality could be you, you never know you know
0: it's an interesting way to end thank you very much dominic
2: my pleasure
0: so what was the show like i met with jane morris editor at large at the art newspaper and culture Shop media to discuss it after two solid days spent in the giardini and arsenali Jane, let's begin by talking about the Ralph Rugoff curated show, May You Live in Interesting Times. What's your impression so far?
3: Well, I like the show very much, actually, I must say. It's divided into two parts, as we know. I think the two parts are quite different, and I enjoyed both of them. I think it's a very youthful show. It feels like a very good survey of where art is now. Um, yeah, I enjoyed it.
0: Should we begin by talking about the Giardini? which is the first bit that I saw. The Giardini is a—it's the Ita- old Italian pavilion. It's a 19th century neoclassical building. It's a warren of rooms. And it's always been a problematic space. How do you think he's dealt with that in this show?
3: I think he's dealt with it as well as is possible. And I think the truthful answer is everyone surely struggles with that space. The um, people who don't know it, it you you think that you're walking around um a central hallway um with a basement underneath and then a a, a raised piece on a mezzanine so it it becomes very confusing it starts off okay and then it always becomes confusing once you've gone round this out a bit seen the basement seen the main hall seen the upper bit and then suddenly you're sort of lost and i'm afraid i was lost as usual
0: my experience in the giardini it's 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 a very Curious way of curating this, but I think he's deliberately created chaos. He's created these multiple artist spaces, which feature up to six, sometimes seven artists, often of very different kinds. And I think an uncharitable view of that would be that it was sort of just, uh, you know, sort of filling the spaces. But it seems to me it's a deliberate act to create visual conjunctions which are jarring. Do you, do you think the same?
3: Well, actually, some of those multi-artist rooms are, are some of my favourite rooms in the exhibition, to be honest. I mean, I think most people will prefer the Arsenale, Everyone always does. It's the more sort of spectacular. I felt, though, that the ideas in the show came across more clearly to me in the Giardini. Um, There was one room I liked particularly where um, there's a, a Nari Bagramian sculpture in the middle of the room. It's a particularly fine one. It's these great wax pieces, although they look like giant pebbles, I suppose, but they're actually wax and they're being held in by metal sort of retainers. Um, and it's a very interesting, formal piece of sculpture, I would say. And then round the room, you've got um, an artist called Henry Taylor. Um, he played, paints scenes about African-American life, juxtaposed with Julie Morettu and George Kondo. Um, and for me, I thought this idea that runs throughout the show of whose point of view um, Julie Morettu, I understand, draws, although they're abstract, she draws her base material from photographic images, documentary images, and then these become sort of blurred and disappear. And then she makes these marks, which look a little bit like writing. Um, And that's one kind of way of telling, I suppose, stories or documenting reality. And then, you know, Henry Taylor is talking about many of the same sort of issues, but is a more classical, I suppose, figurative um, painter, uh, but very much drawing from African-American sources. And I felt that, plus George Kondo, um, who is also looking at the idea of um, hidden figures, hidden signs in his work. Again, quite strong work, I thought. I don't always like Condo, and I feel like he's had a bit of a hard time since that documentary, um, you know, The Price of Everything. Uh, but the works look very strong here. And I found these different juxtapositions quite thought-provoking.
0: The... Um- the, that pavilion is not just full of these multi artist rooms. There are some real standout um film works and film and video works. Let's talk about Arthur Jaffer's work. He it's called the White Album, and it is a film about white supremacy. And, of course, Jaffer came to particular attention. He's He's been working for a long time, but he came to very particular attention recently for this extraordinary, very short, but uh, incredibly moving film, which is at Tate Liverpool right now, called Love is the Message, the Message is Death. And this is a much longer film, and in many ways it's it's a very troubling film.
3: I thought it was very interesting because he... As well as the story that the, the the white supremacist documenting the white supremacist material, which is truly, truly shocking. I think for those of us that are not in the United States, it it's almost we know these things happen, but it's almost incredible. I yeah. would say. That such things are openly published, you know, op- openly published, I guess, on social media and often on mainstream media as well. Um, but what he's done, which I found fascinating, was he's also thinking about the people, I presume they're the people in his life, what, you know, white people he knows and he cares about. And that's juxtaposed between these atrocious footage and rants from these white supremacists. It's a really, really uncomfortable, but really interesting film. And I think it fits with what Ralph Rogoff talked about, that he didn't want things that were just kind of one note, that... You know, not not obvious, simple protest. He wanted things where people talk about the complexity. And I thought the complexity of of looking at this and thinking, I mean, I'm white, obviously, um, thinking about my position as a white person watching this was was really... uncomfortable but also kind of beautiful at times it was it's quite a profound film I think
0: yeah I mean one of the things about those sequences of the people that he knows as you say these people in his life is is that um, is that they're very beautifully shot and that again the sort of texture of a personal portrait of, of a known person in comparison with an online youtuber uh, ranting saying oh I'm not racist but and then proceeding to say that white people have a terribly hard time that kind of thing you know it, it really standout there's also he he complicates that even more by including a former racist who is now a sort of anti-racism campaigner who is white and uh has been associated with white guilt by all accounts so so he's exploring a really really nuanced situation of what it is to be white in america and it is it is about american whiteness isn't it
3: and also i think what's interesting is that the 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 now anti-racist um campaigner he does kind of rant and lecture in a in a a, a a bullying way that i think although we would agree with his message i think the way it's delivered would make most of us feel quite uncomfortable and this kind of constant sort of violence and anger um is quite difficult to observe
0: there's a sequence in in the film which includes the video of the song by one oh tricks point never which uh features iggy pop as a kind of strange cgi avatar um and it's a song called the pure and a damned and actually it includes a line which it seems to me speaks to a lot of what uh ralph rugoff is trying to do with this show which is it which is that uh it he says the truth is an act of love and i think the whole fake news alternative faxing was actually much more pronounced than I thought it would be. Because for instance, for instance, in Khalil Joseph's films, uh, which are in both the Giardini and the Arsenali, this black news, it's, 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 it a, in a news program in which every image you see features black people.
3: I think also, as well as the very obvious references, though, to media, and the two works you've just talked about are very clearly about the media. Running throughout the show, there is constantly uh, a theme of whose point of view. So, some of the pieces are not saying, you know, let's just talk about the mainstream media or social media or whatever. It's talking about images and stories of people we often don't hear about, whether that's Western Rajasthani villagers who make Masks, whether it's um a, an artist like Zanali Maholi, who is a black South African lesbian who plays very joyfully sometimes with her image um and I think that's the say that's running throughout the whole show it's It's lots of different ways of talking about who who's telling the story, who's the focus of the story, what kind of story are we hearing
0: the arsenali is is a very different kind of space. And it's much more clear, isn't it? And I think he's done a brilliant job with the Arsenale. He's used these wooden constructions throughout, which are sort of partitioning the space, sometimes opening out more, other times getting it very enclosed. And it, I think it works tremendously well.
3: Yeah, the architects have done a great job there. Um, it's always been a problem, that space. Um, for those who don't know it, it's an enormously long, I mean, really I'm sorry, I ought to know the distance, but it's,
0: it's I think it's 300 meters.
3: It's it, yeah, it feels like a mile. So it's, it's obviously not a mile, but that's about you know, what a fifth of a mile. It's very, very, very long. It's an ancient space, it's a medieval cordillera that then with subsequent 19th century additions. But the roof levels aren't the same, it's lower at the sides and higher in the middle. There's lots of bits of industrial furniture. I mean, Empty, it looks absolutely brilliant. It's extremely difficult for anyone to install. I think one of the installations that most of us remember was Massimiliano Gioni's, I think, 2013 exhibition, which had an incredibly expensive white cube installation. This I thought was a really good halfway house because I believe that cost a huge amount of money. And I think, although it was great, there is a limit to how much you're ever going to turn the Arsenale into a white cube. Um, these kind of plywood divisions and transparent sort of uh, cloths and things have made the sense of it being a bit more like a gallery but without going too far and I thought that worked very well and I think the idea has been to give the artists as much as possible their own sort of individual spaces so you get to see a reasonable display of the artist's work and I think that was very successful
0: how do you think the idea of the artist showing different works in different spaces works
3: I think that's great, but I think that we've seen it the wrong way around. We've done the traditional thing, which is to go to the Giardini first and the Arsenale second. Now, he does say that it is Proposition A and Proposition B, and Proposition A is the Arsenale. And I think that a lot of people would find the the Giardini, which I think is the more cerebral and less obviously aesthetically pleasing, although, as I say, for me, had some of my favorite things in it. I think it would be much better to see that second. Um, I really like the idea. I like it for two reasons. One, I mean, Adam Chimchik did this with Documenta, and I was fascinated how having seen artists in Athens, most of whom I didn't know, um, and then seeing them again in Castle, it is interesting how familiarity makes you a little bit more comfortable and a bit more open to somebody's work, and that happens here. But I also think, I think he wants to show that artists themselves are often pigeonholed. And they often are. I mean, we've talked before about Taba Auerbach, who is basically known for one series of work, and that's it. And that's the kind of crumpled fabric drawings. And you know, she makes other kinds of work. I found it fascinating here to see artists showing work, or us, or us being uh, being seeing work by artists that we don't normally see. So I didn't know that Christian Markley does these great big sort of screen prints. I didn't know that Ed Atkins does drawings he's known for you know cgi video work so i really enjoyed that
0: yeah ed atkins a real is a real standout isn't he because the, the character of the work in the giardini versus the arsenale is really quite striking i mean i actually love the piece in the arsenale i'll explain a little bit about it it's deeply complex it includes these texts which are sort of etched into wood with, which were written by a, a contemporary art website um it contains several different screens which featured Images of people crying and being inarticulate, unable to, and we have no idea why they're crying. We don't know what we're seeing, and then we have these sandwiches being created. This this film, which is just a series of CGI sandwiches, which is like uh, lettuce, tomato, and babies, or books or pairs of jeans. So this kind of weird, and it's called Old Food, and there's this it's, it's a really strange installation, but really marvellous. And then you've got these drawings of self-portraits as t- tarantulas in in the Giardini. He's, a, he's an extraordinary artist, I think, Ed Atkins.
3: I feel there's a kind of magical theme running through the whole thing. And I thought how interesting it was that the National Pavilion's do what they do. They do them and you know, they choose what they do. They they in the old days they were supposed to, I think, in some way reference what the director was doing, but that, you know, that went out with the dodo. I'm not sure they even ever tried. But I thought how interesting that some of the things that were in Laura Laura Prouve's film, that some of that sense of magic and mystery and almost celebration, even when we're looking at quite dark subjects, does run through this show as well, I think. And I think the Ed Atkins has some of that.
0: The Arsenally inevitably, it has a lot of the bigger works by artists like Ed Atkins, for instance. Um, also Carrie Upson, a work by her, big installation video and sculpture by her.
3: Well, it's kind of a mad doll's house, isn't it? It's a gigantic doll's house. It is actually based on, I think, a doll's house that her mother had and maybe her mother's friend or an auntie. And, of course, scaled up with this scary under, under the house. You know, if you ever saw... Um, uh, L.A. Confidential, and you know the bit where they find the body under the kind of clapboard house. Well, there's some sort of detritus underneath this clapboard house of a nature you probably don't. It's domestic stuff, but there's, there's definitely a really claustrophobic, rather creepy, fairy tale-y kind of feel to this. And that was referring back to what I was saying about the Ed Atkins as well, because there's all these Baroque opera costumes hanging up in the middle of all that yeah. yes
0: indeed yes as well as the films and and the and the, and the etched text yeah that's right yeah
3: and again not all we associate with him you know normally it's very clean isn't it very sort of very cgi it's usually he is the central character and it's very stripped and pared down um yeah so sorry carrie opson um is one of the big works and i think one of the standout pieces
0: definitely and I, I, one of the things about this this sort of artists showing two elements of their work is that it, it really made me think about making and thinking and about the you know how artists as you say we're not going to pigeonhole the artists it, we're seeing two different types of work and some artists are obviously more consistent in their language others are able to leap between different disciplines and different media very fluently
3: yeah I mean one of the things I like the most I mean I love Carol Bove's sculptures and she actually didn't do anything terribly different in both places she's one of the few people whose work's consistent. But she really made me think about the issue of making. I, I was very. They're basically these tubular sculptures, but instead of being like Caro or Tony Smith, or which they do reference, I think they're all kind of crumpled and sagging, and the surface is all. The surface is rough. It's rough iron, but it's been coated with this kind of paint and some sort of polymer, polyurethane, maybe. I'm not sure, but it gives it this incredibly matte slightly textured finish so it looks more like velvet they look more like soft sculptures and not these great heavy pieces which in fact is what they are I was saying that really because I was thinking about what you said about making I think there's a real love of making and technique running through this show Um, I felt that Ralph Rugoff has selected A lot of artists who do very interesting things with materials and form so as a result it's quite an aesthetically it's not I wouldn't say attractive there are some attractive bits but it's an aesthetically interesting show and I thought that was interesting because some of the themes it touches on are similar to the documentary of 2017 some are not some of the themes are very similar and yet this show is I would say a much more um, enjoyable aesthetic experience because of that
0: May you live in interesting times and most of the other Venice Biennale events continue until the 24th of November. You can read all our Biennale coverage online at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms and do subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them and if you enjoy it, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find us. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and we're also on Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Junior Mahauska, Amy Dawson and David Clack and David is also the editor. Join us next week for the last of the Top of the Pods with David Hockney and friends. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.